All right, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at uh, a couple parables this morning. They're actually really brief, and so they're, they're somewhat punchy because they're brief. Uh, longer stories end up usually still having one point. Shorter stories also have one point. Remember, the parables of Jesus are given with kind of uh, two applicational purposes. One is to teach those who are disciples on the inside, and one is to disclose or to, to hide the, the kingdom program from those who are on the outside. And so oftentimes, even those on the inside have to follow up with questions and have Jesus give an exposition of the challenging truth. I, I don't think these parables require quite as much exposition by our Savior, and so we don't have Matthew break it down for us by recording Jesus' explanation. The parable we have in verse 44 and 45 and 46 um, is one of the kingdom of heaven comparing it to a treasure. The other is comparing the kingdom of heaven to a pearl. Uh, we don't necessarily think of pearls as extremely valuable, but in, in Jesus' day they did. So maybe in your mind at least you can think like diamond. Because we have diamonds that are, are relatively worthless. You know, they're tiny little fragments. They're not cut right. They're, they're filled with impurities. But then you have diamonds for which uh, they have more worth than all of your possessions combined because of the size and the beauty of them or the rarity. And I think the same thing would be along the idea of a pearl, that there would be pearls in the day of Jesus which would cost more than all the possessions of the merchants that he was interacting with. Uh, they're just incredibly valuable in that culture. So look at the verse in 44 with me. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now look down with me in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And we look at these two parables, and they're really simple, aren't they? They're, 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 they're punchy little stories that drive to us some truth about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven in this passage is compared to a pearl. It's compared to a treasure in a field. And again, the point on, on the obvious, uh, obvious side of things is that, that Jesus is trying to help his disciples and those who are hearing him preach understand how they should value the kingdom of heaven. So when you look at this, the kingdom of heaven, uh, we probably need to back up again and define kingdom. A kingdom is... Defined by three ingredients at least. A king, right, you with me so far on this one? It has a king who is doing what? Reigning over his realm. So, I mean, again, the, the people who like alliteration, ruler, reign, realm. So I'm sitting here looking at this passage thinking, if Jesus is comparing uh, the kingdom to a treasure, there's no way he's thinking, you become the king. You own the kingdom. His point is, is that you own participation in it. Or maybe we would say, you become a citizen in it. You, you, you own it as, as in you become incorporated into it, and it becomes yours, your possession, your inheritance. So that's, that's his, his push, is to get his disciples to understand and to embrace and value the kingdom. Now, he's speaking to a culture that I think shares him incredible similarities with ours that's, that's worth, I think, on the front side, kind of scratching into to, to, to get past the surface. So he is speaking to a very religious culture. The Jewish culture identified themselves as the people of God. In fact, they would call themselves the children of God. How many of you identify yourself as one of God's people? Would that be any different? I mean, like just we got a random group of, of can I say Bakersfieldians? and brought them in, I'm not sure our percentages would change very much. Most people that I interact with in Bakersfield think they're a believer and would identify themselves as a Christian in some way. Maybe they're just, they grew up in a Christian home. Maybe their idea of Christian is really broad. They would include in that anyone who, you know, has a sacred book called the Bible or the Book of Mormon or whatever. They read the Watchtower or they just go to Mass. They would all kind of group themselves as Christians. Now, you might go like, oh, oh, and you wouldn't want to offend, but you might say, you're actually not part of the group, but, right? Like, but, but, but as Bakersfield people, we, we identify ourselves as religious, 
And then we say, well, what makes, you make, what makes you a genuine Christian? And the answer is sometimes nothing more than you go to the right church. Or, or you affirm the right set of principles about the Bible. Or simply, maybe you're aware of the truth of Scripture and you agree that Jesus is the Son of God, died, rose again. Jesus lives in a culture where everyone was kind of default, a, a person of, of God, a religious person who had, in their, in their minds at least, a secure reason to believe they would have eternal life with God. Now, the security of that hope, Jesus is trying to sever because they shouldn't have hope. That's, that's kind of an awkward moment, right? I mean, you've, you've maybe been there or felt like you should have been there. You're talking to someone, they say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And in your mind, you're thinking, no, you're not. And that's a problem because if they're not a genuine, sincere follower of Christ and they don't have the hope of eternal life, but they think they do, they're in deep trouble. But that is a really challenging conversation to have with someone where you unpack their hope and take it away. And now, now they look at you and say, well, how dare you take away my hope? So, so if you have this default religious society, not only is their hope secure, their hope is anchored to something that's false. So most, most Jewish people in Jesus' day would have identified salvation as being part of the people of God and involving themselves in the rituals of the people of God. So here I am, I'm, I'm a Benjamite, and I do the religious things. I sacrifice at the temple once a year at Passover. I celebrate these things. I keep the, the rituals of the law. How dare you tell me I shouldn't have hope that I have eternal life? And so hope is secured by partnership in the right people and by doing the right ritual. And Jesus is preaching this parable to both help his disciples understand and value the, the citizenship in the true kingdom as opposed to a false hope and a false way of getting there. And to, and to unpack for them that, in fact, this is, this is a theology that the culture has embraced that is not God's theology. So I would like to give you four, I suppose we can call them observations. Let's call them insights. Precious insights, I think, into the kingdom that, that should transform us as we engage culture, but also if you're one of the people of our culture. If you're sitting here and, and you cannot identify a moment where you have repented of sin and placed your trust in Jesus Christ and pledged and lived under the pledge of loyal faithfulness to your king, then maybe this is one of those awkward moments where I'm unpacking your hope and taking it away from you, not because I'm your judge, but we're actually talking about the judge's words and he's doing it through the message this morning. If that's the case, then praise God for the grace of true hope. And that would be our goal, that we'd point you to true hope this morning, not just leave you hopeless. Okay, so when we look at this passage, these... Um, I, I think incredibly important insights Jesus wants his disciples to understand is first the kingdom of heaven is not superficially understood. It's not superficially understood. Or, or, or we could say easily, the problem is easily has the idea like you have to be having a high IQ, but that's not the point. When you look in this passage, he is making a clear observation that the kingdom of heaven is something that is like a hidden treasure. Or like a pearl that must be searched for. Look in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Clearly we need to look in verse 44. I actually want you to look at your text. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden. Or you come down to, to verse 45. It, it's like a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in. Why is he searching for something? Why is, is the treasure hidden? Because it's not and again, I don't want to use the word easy. It's not obvious. It's not the type of truth that the whole world just turns and says, you know what, I need this God thing. Oh, there it is. It requires spiritual discernment. 1 Corinthians 2.14 speaks of the natural man who does not have the Holy Spirit versus the spiritual man that is one who has the Holy Spirit. And he says that the man without the Holy Spirit does not understand the things of God because he must have the Holy Spirit to understand them. 
The point would be, just as Jesus says here, that the kingdom of heaven is not something that we just can easily, within our culture, understand. It's not something that can be superficially um, picked apart, understood, and appreciated by the unbeliever. I think it is helpful to notice that both of these men come into the kingdom of heaven in different ways. You come to the first parable, it's this man who, who at least doesn't look like he's searching. He finds the treasure in a field. So whether he's plowing the field or whether he is working crops for another farmer, he finds a treasure in a field. Now, most of us, especially in our culture, who owns the treasure? The landowner. In, in, in Hebrew culture, anything outside of the house, even if it were stuck in the wall of the house from the outside, is considered finders keepers type of thing. So if you find something outside of the doorpost, outside of, out of the frame of the door, in the exterior of the house, that's essentially public property-ish. And so you can make a claim on it, but this man actually goes a step further. What does he do to, to own the treasure? He actually purchases the field. Now, culture would have said, hey, he could just grab it and go. But he, he sets aside money, spends all that he has to purchase this field so that he can own this hidden treasure. The merchant, on the other hand, searches. If you're thinking through what Jesus is saying, I think he's saying both come into possession of this precious treasure of the kingdom of heaven, but they do so through somewhat different means. But both of them required something more than just a superficial understanding. One found something hidden. One went in search of something that was not easily accessible. And this is, in terms of God's saving grace, isn't this true of each of us? I don't think as many testimonies as I've heard, there are some similarities, but there is no identical testimony. If there was, we're asking questions like, wait, did you just like steal someone else's testimony? We come to Christ through different ways. Some of you were grew up in sweet Christian homes, and your whole life your parents were, were pressing the gospel into your minds. And the Holy Spirit enlivened the truth and brought you to, to faith. Some of you, you were in you were in dark places in this world. You're in addictions and you are a broken person and the God's saving grace has met you on that path. You look in scripture. There's this man from Ethiopia. God miraculously sends Philip to tell him about the truth. Or Paul, who's on his way to persecute Christians and Christ stops him on the road and blinds him with the glory of Christ and saves him. And some of you were saved by God's providential kindness in, in so many different ways. But inevitably, God did a work of grace to help you see what cannot be superficially seen about the kingdom of heaven, that it is good and you need it. So the kingdom of heaven is not superficially understood. It's insight number one. You, you would not remember World War II, I assume, but in 1945, as World War II was ending, the Germans were in a rush to get rid of stuff. They had pillaged all of Europe. They had acquired wealth. And in fact, the reason that, generally speaking, a lot of times the Germans failed to win World War II is because they actually ran out of manpower as much as anything. But they were wealthy at the destruction, or there was wealth in their, in their economy uh, when they finally fell in 1945. Anyways, uh, th this young girl... She's about 20 years old in 1945, named Ida Weisenbacher. You'll remember that name, I'm sure. Um, was woken up by German soldiers in the spring of 1945, and they had boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff. And they said, hey, do you have some carts and horses? And she did. She was living on a farm. And so they piled her, her carts full of you know, these wood crates stamped with uh, some numbers on them and painted. And, and the reason they needed the carts is because they were driving to a lake, Lake Toplitz. And they, they floated these boxes out into the lake and dropped them. It's an incredibly deep mountain lake that's inaccessible to vehicles in 1945. And they dropped these boxes so that as they were losing the war, Hitler was already dead at this point, that this treasure was not discoverable. And it wasn't until 1999 
that after, and I think it was through the, the scientific press to, to push deep sea exploration because of things like the Titanic, that it wasn't until 1999 they actually were able to recover these boxes of German treasure. You know, the kingdom of heaven may not be quite so deeply hidden, but I think our culture has heard something false from Christianity, that the gospel is simple and easy and everyone has it. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is precious. And those who want to possess the kingdom of heaven need to understand with spiritual eyes and with hearts of faith how they can possess the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't know what it means to possess the kingdom of heaven, this room should be filled with expert tour guides who can lead you on the path to understand and get the treasure. And if you know the precious truth, and our possessing citizenship in God's kingdom, then you should be filled with joy and gratitude because it is not through human effort or human wisdom that anyone apprehends and owns citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. The second insight I think we see in this passage is that owning citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is contrary to loving this world's treasures. Maybe I could say this, ownership in both the kingdom of heaven and jealousy to own the kingdom of this world are contrary ownerships. So we look at this passage, and you'll, you'll notice these phrases. It's interesting that in both of these, he's very clear to say something like this. Verse 44, then in joy, he goes and does what? He sells how much? All he has to buy that field. Come to verse 46. This man in search for pearls, plural, finds a single pearl. And what does he do with any of the pearls he's found in all of his possessions? He sells all of it. Now, Jesus does not make us sell all of our stuff to the church or just give it away to the church to get heaven. I'm thankful for that. But if he did, Jesus would say it's worth it. I think, I think I, in that case, we'd probably consider ourselves a cult. Again, he doesn't require that. That's not the point. But it's not too much longer after this. He, meet, he meets a rich man who is a ruler of the people. And this man comes to him, and he's proud of his self-righteousness. He's proud of his accumulation of wealth. And Jesus says, sell everything you have. Then you can come. The Bible says the man went away very sad because he was wealthy. He was unwilling to give up everything he possessed in order to possess citizenship in the kingdom. He stumbled across a treasure hidden in a field. He found that pearl of great price. And he said, no, the cost is too high. Jesus says this in Matthew 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. Luke 9, 23, Jesus gives the gospel this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I wanted to use Luke. Both Mark and Matthew have that same verse. They don't have the word daily. I think it's, it's helpful for us because sometimes as Christians, we think it's like the price of entry is a one-time price. And it seems like Jesus is really clear in Luke to say, this is not simply a one-time cost. That the cost may actually not be paid at entry. It may be very uh, insignificant in terms of price you pay when you trust Christ. Uh, I was saved at a young age. I was in kindergarten when I, uh, and I remember this, so if, if any of you are wondering about my story of salvation, here's a couple things I remember. I remember going to a Dunkin' Donuts and ordering an apple fritter. I remember sitting with my dad as he grilled me about my theology and asked me if I was truly ready to trust in Christ. And I remember understanding enough to start piecing together some of the beauty of God's gospel. I remember kneeling in prayer between my parents, one on one side and one on the other, and asking Jesus Christ to rescue me from my sin and forgive me. What does a five-ish year old, I do not remember the date, what does a five-year-old give up to Jesus 
All my money? I had like three quarters. That was on a good weekend. I didn't have some girlfriend who hated Jesus. Her name was Evie. I have no idea what she believed about Jesus at that point. What did I give up? I didn't have a choice about obeying my parents. I obeyed them or else. It's not like I come to Jesus like, oh, I will promise to obey my parents now. I obeyed because believe me, I obeyed. Just you did in our house. That's the way it was managed. That's a good thing for my parents. But it meant when I came to Jesus and I held out my hands and said, you have everything, I essentially had nothing to give him. And it cost me almost nothing to follow Jesus as a five-year-old. And I, I don't know what it has cost any of you to follow Jesus, but sometimes the price of admission is very small, but it's a price you willingly own for the rest of your life. Because Jesus doesn't say having things in this world is contrary. It's that willingness to value the kingdom of heaven that would cause you to give up anything and everything at any moment to follow Jesus. I think this is sometimes measured in past history, in the conquest, at least, for instance, in England, the, 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 the rising of kings and queens that believed in a false gospel and burnt men at the stake. When they trusted Christ, it might have been something that cost them little. And then comes in Mary, this new queen who hates the Protestants. And now it is recant of the true gospel of Jesus Christ or be burned in front of your church. That cost had a delayed price, didn't it? They didn't have to pay at the entry. They had to pay inside. I have no idea what the gospel will cost you, but it does cost you this. Absolute willingness to obey Jesus. He is the king. You do not come into citizenship of his kingdom while not wanting to have him be your king. And if he's your king, that means you submit to him when he says to do something. It means a submission to scripture to know what Jesus says and to know his will for your life and pursue it, even when he calls you into painful or, or expensive pathways. You will do it. Sometimes the cost, and I think for me, this would probably be the one that's most challenging, is just the discipline of the pursuit of Christ. Do you live up to your call to love Jesus by just the discipline of pursuing him? Reading and praying and encouraging yourself by, by study, fellowshipping with other believers, these are some of the costs of a faithful follower of Christ. These are the costs of those who truly possess citizenship in the kingdom. In fact, in, in reference to our culture where everyone says they're a Christian somewhat by default, I think this is a helpful way to, to penetrate past that fog of confusion they have. Are you faithfully following Christ? If they are not faithfully following Christ, I think they should have no confidence that they're saved. Now, they may be saved. If we were to survey the room, how many of you have been believers and struggled in disobedience at times? I think most of us, <laughs> well, their hands are up. We have moments of struggle, right? So we ask the question, do you have signs of life? Do, do you have a heart for Christ? And, and if you do, then, then repent of not following Jesus. But if there's this unwillingness to repent and turn from sin, this unwillingness to submit to Christ as king, then perhaps he's actually not your king. Is he your king? Yes. Then obey him. Okay. Well, what if he asked me to do something hard? Take up your cross daily. And sometimes that cross actually leads to crucifixion, the death to things you love most in this life. Loving the world, the temporary things of this world, the things that are different and opposed to God's kingdom are things we pin to our cross and at times we lose completely. Third insight. So insight number one, it's not superficially understood. Insight number two is it's 
you, you cannot have both. Owning the kingdom of heaven is contrary to loving this world stuff. Number three, owning the kingdom of heaven requires personal choice. Personal choice. When you look in this passage, the crisis doesn't seem like much of a crisis. But each man finds the treasure. What does he do when he finds the treasure? He sells everything. So, so you have this option. The, the man finds the treasure in the field, and he's like, oh boy, there's this treasure here. What do I do now? He leverages everything he has to buy the treasure. That required some diligence and choice. He didn't just say, oh, wow, look at that, treasure, <laughs> and keep walking. He has to make a deliberate, purposeful choice to get the treasure. The man in search of the pearl finds this incredible pearl. What does he do? He doesn't do what you and I do when we go to a museum. I remember going and visiting in London and seeing the crown jewels. All these amazing things that are, in some ways, priceless because of the antiquity and who owns them, but also just because of the fact that they're like diamonds the size of your fist type of things. Like, oh, might as well just be glass for me. I'm really not into jewelry like that. Like, that's interesting. It's really, you know, like fascinating. It's fascinating to see the historical stuff because it's history. But I walk out, I'm not thinking, okay, I'm going to sell everything, uh, my daughters, everything I can to get this jewelry. Everything's on the market because I want that jewelry. No, that's not at all how I, I would have responded, even if it was for sale. But these men find something so precious, they have to make personal choices in order to possess it. No one gets into heaven without personal trust in Jesus Christ. Or as the Gospel of John says it, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become his children. Who gets the right to become his children? Those who received him. All can receive him. Only those who do receive him become his children. Or John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes will never be cast out. Whoever comes. It's not whoever knows. And this is perhaps one of the ways we've gotten the gospel wrong. There are truths that you firmly believe that have no no significant impact on your heart or your confidence or your trust. I am very confident George Washington was our first president. I'm relatively confident that two plus two is four. These are not earth-shattering facts that lead me to trust in those truths in any way that leaves my life contingent on their truthfulness. If you were able to prove to me that two plus two is not in fact four, I do not eternally get condemned to hell. If you were to think of this in terms of, of what it really means to trust in Jesus Christ, he is the lifeline that holds you over God's hell. And were his claims to be proven false, the lifeline would snap like a spider web. And you would plunge to eternal damnation. If he is wrong, you are damned. If he is not the Son of God, you are condemned. If he has not fully paid the price for sins by dying on the cross, proving through his resurrection the absolute perfect forgiveness he offers, if all of that is just smoke and mirrors and, and fraud and spiritual manipulation, then you judgment. And the only thread holding us up is the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it be not true, you are damned. You trust in that one thread because it is the only thread. And it will never break. And so we trust. Not in fear, because he's Christ. His integrity is beyond question. He is true. That cable of confidence we have in Christ will never be proven to be false because he is true. That is what it means to have truth. Every once in a while on my Facebook feed, there's something that's actually interesting. A few weeks ago, one of them was, in fact, people not trusting 
in bunch trusting them either, just to be honest, after watching some of those videos. But what was interesting is watching these people with absolute confidence strap on all the gear, they get to the edge, and they just melt in terror. What was funny was to watch the, the workmen get them off the ledge, because oftentimes they would trick them. And one of the videos is tricking panic as she's plummeting to be caught by this cord and safely. And then when she gets back up laughing confidently, like, <laughs> I knew how long it would hold me. Christ is not a risky proposition. And his people trust in him safely. There is no other option. The people who have no cable anchoring them to grace. The cost is this life. They had to sell everything they had. It required a personal choice. Have you made that personal choice? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Or are you sitting up on the platform watching other people make this choice to trust Christ? It's personal ownership of Jesus as king, a submission to him where they give themselves fully into the care of their king and, and, and they're walking into a gracious salvation where they are forgiven completely and you're like, oh, well, that's good for you. I don't know if I can do that. Listen, everyone, everyone is going to be in jeopardy of God's judgment. And only those who have Christ will be held out of it. The fourth insight I think is valuable for us to know this morning is that owning the kingdom of heaven is worth everything you hold. It's worth everything you hold. I think that's, that's probably the most evident and simple application from this passage. What does this man do with joy? He sells everything he has so that he can own the treasure. What does the other one do? He sells everything he has so he can own a pearl. I think we're all going, really, a pearl? But that's the point, is, is it is so precious that with joy they set aside everything so that they can just hold this one thing because it is so dear to them. I, I would have to be very convinced, but if you had one of those mega lotto tickets that was worth like $1.4 and you said, Mark, you have to give me every possession, all your dollars, any computer you own, your cars, you have to give me everything for this winning lottery ticket worth $1.4 I would not be stressing. <laughs> I would be begging. I wouldn't be like, oh, but we love our house. I'd be like, sweet, we can get a better house. Like, I really would be totally okay with you taking and repossessing my minivan. You don't have to give me a lottery ticket. You can just, like, take the pink slip. Hey, there's so, I mean, like when you compare $1.4 billion to all of the assets the Brocks have stacked up, believe me, we would be overjoyed with the trade. And probably most of you would be too. I, mean, I don't think we have any billionaires in here. How much more in Jesus' analogy? I mean, these are wealthy men that he gives in his analogy. They're overjoyed to possess the intangible ownership of the kingdom. We have, we have made heaven cartoonishly boring. I am confident that as, as energizing as it can be for my spiritual soul to hear our church worship the Lord, that the worship in heaven will not only not simply be musical, it will be not less than that, but it will be much more than that that your heart cannot actually understand and comprehend what heaven is like in a way that does it justice. If you look in Revelation, I'm going to read just a couple excerpts because I think some of the significance is missed in, in Revelation. There's some, there some structural things that are fascinating, like streets made of gold. That's actually in the Bible. And again, if, if gold is your pavement. The point is, is there is no shortage of resource to bring joy and comfort to God's people and to bring beauty to their eyes. If you use gold as pavement to make things pretty, you have all the resources you need to make things good. Revelation 21, verse 7. Let me go back to verse 6. 
And the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Without requiring payment is the point. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I think, I think we miss some of the sweetness of what those two verses say. Every one of us is a soul thirsty for what only God can give. You see it if you were to scan through the, the athletes and the actors of the day that make millions. It is not infrequent that we hear the sad and tragic news of an actor who commits suicide through drug overdose. It is not uncommon that those who are the wealthiest run through marriages like they're eating candy because they are desperate for what only our Lord can give, the satisfaction of a thirsty soul for the forgiveness of sin and the fellowship of their creator. That cannot be reached that thirst cannot be satisfied without actually having fellowship with your creator. So we look in Revelation 21, and he speaks of giving to these souls that are thirsty a drink from the well of eternal life. He is speaking to two elements, both the satisfaction only he can give and the life that comes with it. He says to those who conquer, that is to Resist the temptation to give in to the things of this world and pursue them rather than Christ, even to the point of death. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. It's not just fellowship. It is the sweet closeness of knowing God as your father. If we were to come down to verse 20, excuse me, chapter 21, look at verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There, there is a double promise in that you may miss. The first is that there will be no sinners in heaven. How many of you are a sinner? So are you going to get there? Okay, so here's the, here's the double promise. You are going to get there if you have Jesus Christ. If you're the one who's bought that pearl who's uncovered that treasure and invested your life in pursuing the kingdom treasure of knowing Christ and being saved by him, you are going to be in heaven, which means what won't come with you? Your sin and your sin nature. And the beauty of this is just absolutely breathtaking. You will never, ever break or hurt someone's heart because of your sin. You will never have that guilty sorrow of knowing you can never unwind the words that you let out of your mouth and did damage with. You will never have to know the soul hurt you cause another human being who's precious to you, but you let your sin hit him hard. You will never feel that again. You'll never know the sorrow of indifference. Ever. I think we miss the beauty of heaven is God makes us new. And because he does that to all of us, they won't do it to you either. And, and here's, here's some of the byproducts of that, just glorious. Some of you have, have wonderful, good hobbies that you enjoy that are productive. But we live in a cursed world. We live in a world that, that breaks things down and tears things up. Some of you remember when we bought this campus about three years ago, how bad it was. The carpet stank. The stucco on the outside was chipped and broken. The cross was crooked. That was a design flaw. The roof over there was caved in, rotting. It was just broken down. This building was built in 1984 and 85. And in 30 years, the thing had fallen in disrepair. Just 30 years. Some of you know exactly what I mean because you see it in the mirror. Your bodies are in disrepair. Some of you know what I mean because you know that you could spend your life building a business. And it's, as, it's only as strong as the person who inherits the leadership of it. Now when we go to heaven, the things we invest in 
will never be torn down by a world filled with entropy and degrading corruption. It will be for the good and the health of people. There will never be the idea of pollution. We'll never see a friend get cancer. We'll never have a graveside service, ever. We'll never build something for the glory of Christ to see it decay and hurt. We'll never disciple another person to be more like Christ and have them ever decline again. We will never, it seems, forget. So when you learn something, you remember So as you learn of people and how God has saved them and you hear of God's grace and your theology of who our Savior is grows because you don't just know what the Scripture says about his faithfulness. You hear stories of faithfulness after faithfulness after faithfulness after faithfulness after faithfulness after faithfulness. faithfulness. And your heart and your theology are rich. And you never die. And so you have production and richness and sweetness and sinlessness endlessly. And do you know what word you will never, ever hear in heaven? I'm bored. Because you will be eternally captivated by the pursuit of serving your king for his glory. And you'll find deep joy in it. I know my wife is like this. I wish I was more like this. She finds joy in getting good things to people. So what will make her most happy at Christmas is not getting a gift. Not that she wants no gifts. It, it, I mean, her joy will not be in receiving gifts. So if I said that in the wrong way, she was going to get nothing, and everyone would be like, are you happy? Uh, her deepest joy would be finding something that would just bring joy to those she loves. That creative gift that no one else could think of or no one else could produce and and giving it to them because this is something she has the capacity to do and she gives it to them. It's that perfect gift that brings real happiness and real joy to them and she's able to watch them appreciate something. In heaven, your greatest joy will be to articulate generosity and grace to others in ways that bring them to their Savior in joy forever. It will be a never-ending place where your hobby is to glorify God through the gifts he's given to you, being brought back to service to him. If you want to think of it in terms of big picture, the Bible seems to indicate that the kingdom of heaven in eternity will be something like the earth could have been had Adam never sinned. So real production, real economy, real finances, real work that's done in a way that's enjoyable, that's not tainted by the ruination of sin. Do you enjoy living your life now? One of the sad things, and I think it should remind us, is the fear with which many face COVID. Now, I look at, at the, the disease as, as minimally risky, But I also realize that it's unfair for me to measure the world by this. There is zero risk that I will die and lose anything. Because I agree with Paul, to die is gain. And so I face an uncertain health crisis, and and if I'm not careful, I'm very unsympathetic to an unbeliever. If they die, they lose everything and are judged forever. They have no hope of heaven. They do not own that pearl that's so precious. They do not own the treasure hidden in the field. And so this life is all they have. Now, I don't think the coronavirus is going to take me to be with my Savior. But if it does, I win. If it doesn't, I get to keep living and serving and and glorifying my king. And when he takes me home, great. Whenever that is. Because I have the hope that only the gospel can give me. When you look at heaven, there is this concept that that we will live life productively. There will be nations and and work and goodness in it. 
I didn't finish that story about the Germans. They had buried this treasure at the bottom of the lake. The lake is some 350 deep at spots, and so getting in there is, is a challenge. And finally, in 1999, they began to dig through the bottom of this lake. And after spending almost two weeks, they gave up until they found what they believed was a piece of wood from one of the crates, and so they thought they were in the right section. They, they began to diligently search in that area. And, and they didn't find much, but they found a pack of papers. And they pulled the papers to the surface. And as they began to evaluate them, they, they were able to quickly piece together the picture of what happened in World War II Germany. In fact, these papers were counterfeit British currency. They were British pounds. In World War II, the Germans had done something called Operation Bernard, in which they had got the world's best artists that they could acquire. One of them, actually, was a Jewish man that they arrested, and I think they killed his family, but they forced him in Berlin to reproduce the British pound to the tune of $4.5 billion of counterfeit currency, which in the World War II market would have ruined England. And that was their strategy, is they were going to airdrop this money over England. And they knew that by doing so, by dropping this counterfeit money, that even though people knew it would hurt England itself for their own personal gain, they would, they would pull up some of that money because it's free money. And it was so well done, there's no way that the, the British would be able to filter it out. And it would flood their economy, it would break their system, people would not want to buy and sell because they're afraid they're getting counterfeit. Meanwhile, people are actually taking the counterfeit money and trying to pawn it off, and it would ruin England. We still don't know why they didn't get it done. But that was what was at the bottom of the lake. Is counterfeit money. Which is ironic to me. On two levels. Because counterfeit money is worthless. And it ruins. And these men spent millions of dollars in 1999 chasing a treasure that literally was counterfeit. Both in World War II, it would have ruined England. And in 1999-2000, they found a worthless treasure. If there is something to be learned from this, it is both the positive and negative of treasure. We do not have a counterfeit God. But our world and our culture in Bakersfield, I think, has a counterfeit gospel. It is our duty to hold out direction and call people to the hidden treasure, to, to put the pearl on display, to call Bakersfield, to come to the sweet goodness of Jesus, to understand that he demands to be king, not just a membership card in your wallet that, that offers you a few perks, but has no cost and no demands of you. Jesus Christ demands of you everything. And then he gives you so much grace back. He doesn't always require everything all at once, does he? But he requires that he owns your soul, that he owns your desires, and that he gives direction to your life. I think our world, especially in the United States, is in many ways condemned because they hold a counterfeit pearl and counterfeit treasure. And can I encourage you, Christians, if you sincerely believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the world will try to tell you there's something better. And they're only selling you a counterfeit. Don't buy it. Follow Jesus. And some of the ways the world offers that counterfeit is simply through a turn of sin. Hey, listen, you can follow King Jesus. Just give in. Just do this. And our integrity softens. Our commitment to Christ softens. And it's often measured in the little disciplines, the little faithfulnesses, the little things that as we begin to slide, no one at church notices. And we are, we are filling our wallets with counterfeit currency at the cost of the glory of Christ. Do not fall for the counterfeit currency of this world. Follow Christ. So we look in this little parable of Jesus. Don't forget some of the simple truths that the Lord teaches us it's not superficially understood. Owning the currency of heaven requires you to be willing to let go of the currency of this world. It must be personally 
appropriated and owned and decided. And finally, it is so worth it. The value of heaven is beyond compare. Don't hold back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sweetness of Christ's sermon. Father, thank you that in, in one breath, he warns us of hell so that we would be moved away from sin and recklessness and move towards the urgency of faith. And in the next breath, he reminds us of the sweetness and the preciousness of heaven. Father, I ask that you would strengthen us with those values, that you would help us to remember to always be personally strengthening our hope and revitalizing our hearts to know and, and with confidence move towards valuing heaven. Lord, help us not to grow casual or, or indifferent to the spiritual movements of this world, that we have neighbors and loved ones who might criticize us personally, but they need Christ. And there is, there is this immense value that we know about that sometimes we keep secrets and hidden. Father, I pray that you would help our church to be a place where we are constantly pointing people to find the treasure, to search out and know Christ and be saved by him. I also ask that you would help us to, to strengthen in our own hearts a love and a joy in your people, the ones we will be with in heaven. Lord, give us loving and sweet hearts to them as they share this treasure with us, as they know with confidence that they will be saved from sin forever and welcomed into your heaven. Help us to love them by serving them through, in, through strengthening and encouraging them to love the gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray that your son would always be glorified by us, that he would be not simply king and title, but that our hearts would continually find ourselves submissive to his reign, that he would rule over us as a sweet but good authority and king over us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.